Welcome to the podcast of the fabulous Las Vegas Rotary Club. My name is Michael Gordon, and I'm proud to serve as the 95th president of the greatest Rotary Club in the world. Our club serves our local and international community through a variety of projects, but our main focus is on youth literacy. If you're ever in town for either business or pleasure, we invite you to join us at one of our weekly lunches. More information about meeting time and location can be found at lasvegasrotary.com. Now, sit back and enjoy this week's speaker. Good afternoon, fellow Rotarians and friends. How do you do? If you're like me, and I'm sure most of you are, sometime in our past life we played some organized ball, maybe in a class play, an orchestra, a choir, and each time there was someone that laid out the plan, you practice, you get on the field, and you're supposed to do it. And when that day came that no one here ever wanted to see, and the call went out, our first responders reacted with skill, training, discipline, and courage. Our speaker today was very instrumental in that training, and when the call came out, he was also on the front line. Please welcome our speaker, Sheriff Joe Lombardo. Sorry about that, Bill. I had food in my mouth there. Well, good afternoon. Man, that was terrible. All right, let me try it one more time. Good afternoon. There you go. So, thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to address the crowd and the Rotary and when I was coming in, the thing I love about talking to the Rotaries is when you come in, you get regaled with people saying thank you for coming and also want to shake your hand and say hi, and they're very accommodating, and hospitality is stupendous, and I appreciate that. Um, so I wasn't really given an agenda, but traditionally what I like to do is provide you a little history of your police department, because a lot of times we have individuals from the last time I was here talking uh, that are new to town. They don't understand why the sheriff is standing up here and not the police chief. And uh, then I'll talk about crime, what's going on in our valley, give you a little update what's going on with the police department and where we're going in the future. Does that sound good? Yeah. All right, awesome. So uh, for those of you, how many people are, are new from the last time I spoke? Everybody? Not everybody. All right, well, there's a couple. So for those of you that heard me last time, bear with me, I, but I'd like to give a little bit of history of the police department. So traditionally, no matter where you're from, traditionally the city, the incorporated city, has a police chief. And then when you move out into the unincorporated county or the incorporated county, you have a sheriff. And the sheriff predominantly is in charge of the jail um, out in the county. But here, the powers to be, the governing fathers or the government officials that were in place at the time in 1973, 
they said, we have a redundancy of services. Um, let's merge the police department and the sheriff will be the head of it as an elected official. So that's why you have that uniqueness here and that's why you don't hear about a police chief in Las Vegas, unless you're out in Henderson or North Las Vegas or Boulder City in those areas. Uh, so me being the head or the 800 pound gorilla in law enforcement in the Las Vegas Valley to include being in charge of the Clark County Detention Center. So that's how it happened. And so subsequently, I'm the seventh elected sheriff here in the Las Vegas Valley, uh, the predecessor being Doug Gillespie prior to me. I'm in my fourth year as your sheriff, and I'll get this out of the way right now. Uh, I'm running again for another term. So. <laughs> and so you don't have to say, what the hell is this guy doing running around taking pictures? Um, thank you, Caesar. Why is this guy running around taking pictures? Well, he's part of my campaign. That's why he's doing that. So, so uh, um, let's get into it. What's going on with crime in the valley? What is your perception? Is it out of control? It's not. What is it? What do you guys think? You think it's increased? Nope, it's actually decreased. There you go. No, because a lot of people, it, it's a perception thing. And people quite often ask me, you know, it seems like it's chaos here. Every time I turn on the TV, they're, they're talking about murders or crimes. And I said, well, because it's a little bit different because of the 24-hour the news cycle. What you traditionally experienced in years past prior to the Internet and bloggers and, and the competition in the media uh, was you'd hear about stuff in a 24-hour cycle. Nowadays, you hear about it in a 10-minute cycle or actually a one-minute cycle. Um, and so it, the perception is it's total chaos, but in actuality, crime is going down. Um, it's, not, it's going down compared to the year previous, uh, but it still has, it's nowhere near the 1990 levels uh, that we experienced in the past. Now, the numbers may seem like it is, well, no, the number is a little bit higher than the 90s. Well, yeah, but the population um, was half as much in 1995 as it is currently. So you have to put it in per capita perspective. So, more importantly, modern day and current time, violent crime, we're down 1% compared to last year, which is very good. And you say, well, Sheriff, come on, 1%, that means nothing. Yeah, it, it means a lot because we were up 11% from the previous year. So for us to make that reduction is a huge number. Um, so we're going in the right direction. Property crime is down around 3.5%, so if you look in totality of the data set, there's a lot more property crimes than there are violent crimes. Um, the total picture is we're down right around 2.2% in crime, so we're going in the right direction. Good? Good. So why are we going in the right direction? Why? Huh? Because I'm the sheriff, that's why. <laughs> No, actually, it, obviously, any uh, successful organization has nothing, well, it has something to do with the people at the head of the organization, but more importantly, the people that support the organization. And we did some changes on how we fight crime uh, internally on the police department. Um, in years past, we became over-specialized. Uh, we had a silo type of investigative function on the police department. And what I mean by that, if you became a victim of a crime, in other words, you're walking down the street and somebody hits you about the head and robs you. Uh, we would have a patrol officer respond to that. They would take a report and they would do a modicum of investigation associated with that. 
and then a report would be thrown in a basket, and in approximately two weeks, on the average, a detective would put eyes on that. Very poor system, correct? Yeah. Okay. It was. Um, it, was a, it, was a, it was a product of specializing on how we investigate crime instead of globalizing it. And so what it is, cops become over-specialized. A robbery detective only understood robberies. A narcotics detective only understood narcotics. And we didn't generalize it, and we became too specialized, and it actually hindered us in our policies and procedures. So solvability. After a crime has occurred, the detective puts eyes on, and they investigate it. And on TV, they solve 100%, right? In reality, what do you think we did? Huh? Somebody shout something out. If, you, if we did 50%, you would be the president, buddy. Um, no, 80%, absolutely uncalled for. 3%. So let's just put it in context. 36,000 burglary calls a year. Solving 3% of those. If you were in your business, everybody in here is a diverse group here in the Rotary, if your business produced 3% product based on what your overhead was, you'd be bankrupt, correct? And it's no different than us. We got so specialized and so removed from what we did, so one of my goals was to decentralize the detective bureau and push them out into the area commands, make them more responsible. The victim's name became a name versus a number. And right now we're up to 28%. So we're going in the right direction. So. so that has a direct effect on those crime numbers. Because if you look at the rest of the United States, right now um, I, I, it's going to be right around an increase of, increase of 7% of violent crime across the United States. So your, your jurisdiction had a decrease of 1%. So that's good. We're going in the right direction. We're doing the right things on how we look at it. Um, the other result of that and the reason why is it not just because, remember what I said, well, that's after the fact. That's post-crime. What are you doing to prevent it, Sheriff? And my, my idea on that is cops make a difference. You gave me the ability to hire more police officers here recently. We went six years without hiring a police officer. The national average for officers per thousand permanent residents is 2.2. Your jurisdiction had 1.6, not including the 42 million visitors who are responsible for about 8% of my total crime. So we were, we were not being proactive, we were being reactive in what we did as a police agency. Passage of the sales tax enabled me to hire police officers. So. We put our first new police officers on the street in, from the last six years last year. Um, so right now, I have moved that ratio up to 1.9 per thousand, and the proverbial goal is 2.0 per thousand, and we'll be there in April. Um, and so that, that's good. Um, so we're, we're hiring, um, the economy's looking better, and we're making progress on how we're dealing with crime. So just a... a survey of the group, does crime go up or down in a bad economy? Who said down? It's down. Traditionally, crime goes down in a bad economy because people have less stuff to steal. 
they pay more attention to what's going on with what they do have. They tend to huddle, they move back home, um, and then they, they're, they're just more savvy in a down economy. In an up economy, people have disposable income, and it's a ripe environment for crooks. So, Sheriff, wait a minute, you said crime's going down, but the economy's getting better, so it should be going up. No, it's a product of hiring more police officers, the ability to pay better attention, um, and that's why we are meeting success. I also mentioned I am in charge of the jail. How much does it cost me to house a human being on a daily basis? $135 a day. So do the math, times 365, it's cheaper to send your kid to Harvard. It's very expensive to house a human being. My average daily population at the Clark County Detention Center in the North Valley Complex is around 4,100 inmates. I hear the whistles out there. That sounds like a lot, right? In a community our size, it's deplorable. Um, if you look at the western United States, the beds per thousand permanent resident is the worst in the United States. So that's what I'm dealing with moving forward, just so you have a context and you're educated on what the issues are. 72% of my average daily population is felons. That doesn't give me much room for quality of life issues individuals that are out begging on the corners, those things that really bug the hell out of you as a resident. Um, so that's what we have to deal with because we have to be able to give our officers tools to deal with those kind of things. Now what's going on? Is, is marijuana legal now? Yeah. yeah, I'm just joking. I know it is. <laughs> so. <laughs> they, uh, is, that, is it causing me any headaches? Not necessarily, okay? I like baiting you guys into these questions. Um, we, we don't know yet. Um, granted, we, Denver or Colorado was our, our good beta experiment. Obviously, they legalized it years before we did. So we had a lot to draw from. Uh, what was perceived with legalizing marijuana that the black market would go away. That's absolutely false. It actually has bolstered the black market because of the taxes associated with it. It's cheaper to buy it on the black market, just like any commerce, than it is to legally do it because of the taxes and the tariffs associated with uh, the legal piece of it. Uh, so that panacea that people were using marijuana for to balance their budget didn't come true. Um, where they have noticed not an increase in violent crime associated with it, but they have noticed an increase in fatal accidents associated with it. They also have noticed an increase in juvenile admissions into the emergency medical uh, environment because of the edibles. Uh, so those are the things that are on our radar that we're having to deal with moving forward associated with marijuana. So we had, it, I always like to present this because we had our, our nicest or our easiest New Year's Eve celebration this year. And it wasn't because my perception, it wasn't because of all the increase in federal resources that they brought to bear. I think it was a combination of a couple of things. One is um, people were nervous. People were nervous about what happened on 1 October. So there was a calming effect associated with that, but also, and I think this is part of the theory, I, I won't say it, I'll, I'll say it in here, but I won't say it to the press, but I think that green cloud that I was walking through put a calming effect on everybody. So. I like to segue on that. It was, it was, I was out there and I think I got a contact high from just walking down the strip. So, 
Um, so that's what's going on. So back to the jail issue is that's one of my big pushes into my next tenure moving forward is to get an increase from the county commission and ability to house um, individuals that commit crimes at the appropriate level associated with our community. Uh, that's one of my big pushes moving forward. Uh, but we're going in the right direction associated with crime and we're doing a lot of good things. Uh, just for uh, community awareness, uh, we opened up Spring Valley Area Command um, uh, about a year and a half ago, was that, was that about right, Nick? About a year and a half ago, and that's up at Sahara and Cimarron. That it, so that enabled me, because of the hiring of police officers, to get more people out into the community and, and, and to deal with what we deal with as a police agency. But my goal in late 19 is we're going to have another substation opened up at Far Hills and Summerlin Parkway, uh, or Far Hills and 215. And you're saying, Sheriff, why the hell do we need one up in Summerlin? Are you asking me that? <laughs> Crime doesn't happen in Summerlin, right? Well, yeah, it does, but Howard Hughes is paying for it. That's why we're doing it. Because I can't own property um, per the NRS state law. Um, it has to be provided by either a private donation or government entity, uh, particularly the city or the county. So they said, we'll pay for it if you put it here. And that's what we're due. So we'll just make adjustments. We just adjust our, how we operate in our areas of responsibility and push people down. It doesn't really matter what part of town it is. Uh, we make adjustments accordingly. Uh, and that's, so that's what's on the horizon associated with the police department. And then just last night, I had to provide a presentation to the North Las Vegas City Council on a range facility we're attempting to build up on their property uh, for a reality-based training. So it would be the low-frequency, high-risk events that police officers put themselves in on a daily basis uh, to deal with the use of deadly force. Uh, that, so that's the, the, the vision for the police department and what direction we're going. Good information? Good. So what questions do you have of me? Happy to answer them, one at a time. <laughs> Okay, uh, uh, Sheriff uh, Lombardo, is it uh, politically correct to ans ask you how you're going to handle the latest Sessions attitude from Washington, D.C. regarding marijuana and the treatment of marijuana? Everybody hear the question? Uh, he asked me, uh, what is our position or what are we going to do as a police agency dealing with uh, the Attorney General Sessions um, position statement on marijuana? It really doesn't affect me because um, he gave direction to the federal agencies that enforce those laws, particularly the DEA, to make the decision at the state level. Uh, the DEA here locally doesn't have the resources to do that enforcement. Uh, so it would be very, even though the, the, the law has been brought forward, the, they don't have the resources. A bigger issue for the DEA here locally is the opioids and how we deal with that, the methamphetamine and the cocaine. Um, the traditional drugs that you're, you're aware of, um, they have very limited resources. Um, it's quite often we're not called upon um, Las Vegas Metro to deal with those uh, issues associated with dispensaries and cultivation. So I, I don't have a position on that, sir, because it's not my bailiwick. It ends up just like immigration falls under the federal auspice. So. Uh, 
Sheriff, uh, after 1 October, we're all reminded of what you do, and thank you so much. Uh, you alluded to it during your, your, your talk about the homeless and beggars and people approaching you, and it is one of the things that you, you can't go to a, a parking lot of a fine dining restaurant or walk somewhere without being approached by somebody or see them on the street. Uh, Mayor Giuliano somehow managed to reverse that in New York. I don't know if there's something to be learned from them to make that happen, but it, it really uh, is just a poor impression for visitors and, and for people living here when you, you have that kind of overwhelming uh, kind of attacks by people uh, asking for money or frightening you when you're, you're trying to walk into a restaurant. Uh, you are correct in your assessment, and, and they did a yeoman's job in New York, especially Times Square, in dealing with that issue. But what's the answer to the issue? Uh, first and foremost, homelessness isn't a crime. Uh, second of all, a uh, police officer has to have a tool in order to deal with it. And what did I say earlier? I have space issues at the jail, and that's the tool. Um, we don't have the ability to address those type of quality of life issues because 72% at any point in time are felons. Uh, being homeless or uh, quality of life or um, public disturbance or scenic blight, those kind of uh, quality of life crimes uh, are limiting in my ability to incarcerate individuals. Citations do not work with the homeless because we don't have a, a location to locate them when it goes to warrant. Um, so that's the issue we're dealing with as far as resources. Now, you said Mayor Giuliani and uh, uh, Commissioner Bratton, who was the police commissioner at that point, how did they deal with it? They didn't have space issues in the jail. And that's what um, we're dealing with. And that's why it's a multi-pronged approach for me to deal with the county commission in increasing that issue. Sheriff, what's your uh, policy or your thoughts on stop and frisk? Uh, stop and frisk, we don't have a policy on that. Uh, we just abide, I mean, the, the, the key to the stop and frisk issue is there was one word left out of that, um, investigate. Uh, when you quite often hear the stop and frisk rhetoric, they leave out the investigative part. So it was stop, investigate, and frisk um, in that issue, and that's been left out of the rhetoric. It was determined um, to be unconstitutional, I believe, by the Supreme Court. I think it was, uh, was it a state Supreme Court or a U.S. Supreme Court? I believe it was state in New York. Um, it's, a, it's a tool. It's an issue. It's a, you have the ability within the constraints, constraints of the Constitution to be successful. Um, if it just doesn't look right, that's been constitutionally upheld as the ability for a police officer to, because of their institutional knowledge and their personal knowledge, to conduct a stop. Uh, frisk is for officer safety, um, more often than not. Um, they did it as a proactive tool to uh, violate the Fourth Amendment. Uh, so as long as you work within the constraints of the Constitution, you can be successful. Um, I think what had happened with that, the original design of that was strictly within the confines and they went beyond and above the Constitution in order to be successful. But that now, when they pulled back the reins on the, uh, on the police departments that were involved in that, they haven't seen any increase in crime associated with those changes. So. Sheriff, um, you know, it seems like we have a litmus test now or since the Raiders came and everything that happened at the legislature. The Raiders are here? Yeah. <laughs> To let not you here know. yet, are they? But not, you know, you read, uh, you know, in the news or you read in the paper. Well, if we can do the Raiders, then we ought to be able to do X, and that's sort of an unfair comparison. However, 
they do have a point. So if we are, if you are capacity constrained from a jail point of view, and obviously you're very capacity constrained from a police officer point of view, I know your goal is two, but what's the national average? Isn't it more like three and a half or four? Uh, two, two. Two, two, okay. But, but what I'm let, saying is, why can't we do on, it though? I'm finished. Just, hey, I'm going to go back to what he said. Mayor Giuliani and, and what happened in New York, and it's going to segue into your question. Remember what I said my uh, officer per thousand is, right? What do you think it is in New York? 5.5. Talking about resources and tools, correct? So, so segues into you. So my question is, uh, if we can do all that, you know, if we can do a $150 million deal for a minor league baseball team, why can't we get a bigger jail? I mean, that's what's at stake, because if we become Detroit, guess what? The tourists aren't going to come here anymore. So I, I know this is a rhetorical question, but the question is, if we need more jail space, we need more law enforcement, we need more tools, uh, maybe we need something from the legislature from a state point of view. I'm not counting on any state money in any regard whatsoever, but we've always been able to do it ourselves. So the question is, why don't we just do it? Good question. That's why you all have county commissioners that you can call and say, hey, this is the issue. Um, so just, just, okay, just to give you a clarification on how I'm funded, uh, right around 60% of my total budget, I have a billion dollar budget in totality. Around 60% of that is funded by both the city and the county contributions. 34% is done by uh, self-generated funds through property tax and sales tax and then self-generating revenue. Um, so the powers to be, the city and the county have to make that decision based on our funding formula. Um, but in particular to a felony facility outside of a misdemeanor facility, which the county is solely responsible for, they have to enable me to do that. Um, so it, how do you pay for it? You, through enterprise funds through the county, do they do adjustments internally and make it more towards public safety or do you levy a tax? There's only two options there. Um, and a tax is not palatable to most of the population. Um, so you have to make the priorities more important in the county fund uh, through the enterprise funds to, in order to fund that. I agree with you 100%, sir, but they're elected officials just like me, and it requires the people to complain to them about it. Look how many years and iterations of the more cop sales tax we had to go through in order to hire a very small modicum of police officers. Uh, we went through six separate votes on that before we actually got it passed. So it's important for your voice, which is a lot louder than mine in this discussion. Yeah, yeah. Sheriff. Um, one question, well, two. Number one. Hey, he said one. <laughs> I understand that there's an empty jail or an empty jail in Gene, right? Gene. Is anybody using that? And number two, my comment is, because this is what the military has to go through, why don't we put a great big huge pin up on the mountain where it's electrical... Uh, walls uh, and then put pup tents in there. The prisoners can live in pup tents and give them a nice clean uh, toilet and shower. Man, that's a loaded question. 
Uh, your first question, uh, yes, yeah, there, uh, there is a prison up in Jean. It is, it's 20% um, occupied. We have uh, some state uh, prisoners up there. Uh, the other 80% is closed down because it's, it's a state-funded facility. It's not a county-funded facility, and they have to staff it at the state level. So that, they don't have the funding to occupy it 100%. That's, subsequently, that's why it's, it's due. They do everything adjusted on the prison system. So just to give you a matter of clarification what I'm talking about, the Clark County Detention Center will house you um, indefinitely until you are adjudicated in court. I can only house you after adjudication in court uh, for up to a year. If it's more than a year sentence, you have to go to the state prison system. That's how, how the incarceration system works. Um, and I say indefinitely um, pre-adjudication, I have, I have over 300 individuals in my jail right now that are, are in jail for murder, okay? 34 of those have been in jail waiting trial for over five years. So there's a, a lot of different spokes in the system, the criminal justice system, they all have to be functioning at the same level for it to work. And so there's a lot of uh, inherent problems associated with that um, as, we, as we deal with it. So the second question, why don't we put up a, a compound or a campsite and put them in pup tents? There's, there's this organization in the federal government called the Department of Justice. Um, that's why. They, they regulate how you can house people and the conditions that you can house them in. So the proverbial Joe Orpaio Phoenix model of a tent is a fake news, okay? Yes, he had a tent city. It was attached to the existing brick-and-mortar jail, and you had to volunteer to go out there. He wasn't sentencing people to tent city. You volunteered, and if you did go out there, you got a reduction in your sentence. So you have to educate yourself on all the nuances uh, to understand that it's not as simple as it seems. And at face value. So, thank you very much. Thank you for coming to speak to us today, Sheriff. Um, I know you have another appointment and you're standing between these people and their lunch, so we want to get that going too. So, <laughs> um, we want to thank you by presenting you with our Share What You Can Award, where we will give a. Oh, yes. Yes. See, we're out of we're out of we're out of practice. So we'll give a warm meal to a homeless vet in your name. Thank you again for for coming to speak to us. And Thank you. Thank you all again for showing up early and listening to our speaker. As I like to say, Rotary is like tennis. The one who serves best usually wins. Now go forth and make a difference. Thank you for joining us for another wonderful meeting of the Rotary Club of Las Vegas. If you're interested in membership or want to know more about our upcoming projects and speakers, please visit lasvegasrotary.com for more information. Now go forth and make a difference. <laughs>